We're going to continue in our study in the Gospel of John chapter 7. I want to talk to you this morning about seeking in vain. Seeking in vain. And you will see in John chapter 7 verse 34 that this is the words of Jesus Christ Himself. He says there, You will seek Me and not find Me. And where I am, you cannot come. Those in itself is really tragic words. Imagine for yourself that Jesus is telling people, Jesus who came to save the world, Jesus who came to help people in difficult situations, Jesus the one who makes the blind to see, the lame to walk, the mute to talk, the deaf to come alive, he says, there will come a time that you will seek me and not find me. And that's why I make today's topic, seeking in vain. What is this all about? And we're going to see that as we study through our next portion of the scripture. But let me remind you this morning why the gospel of John was written. Why we are going through this. Why we are looking at Jesus' reaction in any situation. Obviously, it's for us to learn. We see how Jesus reacts in a situation, and that is an example for us to react in the same way. So the Bible says in John chapter 20, verse 30, And truly Jesus did many other signs in the presence of His disciples, which are not written in this book. You see, many other signs which is not written in the Gospel of John. And I want to say that if you had to write those, it will make a bigger volume of signs that He did. But you see, Jesus is not all about signs. I preached it two weeks ago. His ministry is a ministry of grace and truth. It is grace, and within the grace, the signs will happen. Within the grace, He will touch the blind and make them to see. Within the grace, He will make the lame man to walk again. That's all grace. They didn't deserve it. But then comes the truth, the sermon, the talking. It, you have to face the truth. So He did many other signs in the presence of His disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written. The ones that we read about in the Gospel of John are written, why? That you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. That's why all of this is written. That's why I'm preaching through that. What is the reason that you preach through the Gospel of John? Why did you choose the Gospel of John first for this church when we open up first of all? Because of this fact, dear brother and sister, but that we may believe that Jesus is the Christ. We've got it on our banners. Jesus is Lord. Do you believe that? He is the Christ, the Son of God. And now this, and that believing, you may have life in His name. Who is seeking for life? I'm looking for life after death. And that is what it is all about. He did many other signs. And in Acts chapter 4 verse 12, the writer writes down, he says, Nor is there salvation in any other. In any other. There is only salvation in Jesus Christ. Only Him. You know, Oprah came up one day in a, in, in a TV show and she said, 
There's many ways to God. Many ways. I want to say this morning, you are wrong, Oprah. There's only one way. And he says it himself. He says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And here in Acts chapter 4, 12, he says, Nor is there salvation in any other name. No other name. Not Buddha, no nothing. It's just Jesus Christ. He is the Son of God. He is the Christ. For there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Praise the Lord. He truly, truly came to this earth. And even that was grace. We didn't deserve it. As we are born in our sin to die, He came to save us and set us free. You see, there were many other signs performed. And this brought us back to last week when you remember His brothers came to Him and said, Go on. Go to Jerusalem and make a name for yourself. You remember that? Go and make a name for yourself. Why do you do all these tricks or all these signs here in Galilee? Why don't you go over to Judea and Jerusalem and do it over there? And Jesus said to them, surely my time has not yet come. But he did go up, didn't he? He went to that feast. And today we're going to see now the interaction that when he came there, what happened? So in John chapter 11, 7 verse 11, he says, Then the Jews sought him after, uh, at the feast and said, Where is he? I want you to notice that he says Jews there. They were looking for him. Why were they looking for him? They wanted to kill him. Remember in uh, John chapter 5 verse 16, 17, 18, when he made the man, healed the man on the Sabbath, they said, you are breaking Moses' law. You're not supposed to do that. And in that interaction with them, he put himself equal with the Father. And they said, oh, this man must surely die. And they were starting to look for him. This is the Jews they were talking about. You're going to find three groups of people we're going to talk about now. The religious leaders, the Jews, the Pharisees, the Sadducees. They said, you see, because they didn't believe in life after death. Now these are these people of higher class, of higher esteem, who was running the religion of the day, the Jewish religion. What they said is law. It is them. When he talks about Jews, it said that they sought him at the feast and said, Where is he? You see, they were seeking Jesus. But they had an agenda for seeking Jesus. Where is he? And there was much complaining among the people concerning him. You see the, the word, the people there? This is a different group of people. So you get the Jews, and now you get the people. And because this is on the back of the Feast of Booths, the Feast of Tabernacles, People from all the regions came to Jerusalem. In fact, Jerusalem's number, they say, grew three times bigger than it was. So there's a lot of people that came from other countries to the Feast of Tabernacles. And if you were a Jew, you had to go to these feasts. So here they came from all of these regions. The people, it's a different group than the Jews. 
but they were complaining about him. Some said, some said, he is good. Others said, no. On the contrary, he deceives the people. However, no one spoke openly of him for the fear of whom? Of the religious Jews. The Jews, the, the men who had the power. They were so afraid of them, they're not going to openly speak about him. But you see, it's the same today. It's the same today. People are confused about Jesus. And it's not because of his message or his messengers. It's because of their hearts and their intents. There are today people who say he's good. Oh yeah, he's just a good man. If you look historically and you look at the historical writings, he's a good man. He did good things. Yes? He gave people food and they didn't even pay for that. That's a sign of goodness. He made, he helped the poor, he helped the blind, he helped the sick. He's, he's a really good man. There are even people today who will say that. But you say they're part of the people. And then there's others who say, no, 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 he deceives people. There's this debate going on. Even to this day, there's a debate going on about this Jesus. I am so glad that you and I know why this book is written. We are not confused. In fact, let me say it this way. We should not be confused about this thing. We shouldn't be of the part that says he's just a good man or he's this deceiver. No, no, no. We know that this book is, right, is written that we believe he's Jesus, he's the Christ, the Son of God. Is that what you believe? I'm not part of the people. No, no, no. I go up against the stream. I want to say to the people this morning, He's Jesus Christ, my Lord and my Savior. That's what I want to say. I'm not part of this downflowing stream. I'm swimming upstream. You see, and by believing in that, I will have life. So this is now going on in Jerusalem. People have got their views on Him. Some say He's good, and some say, no, no, He's bad because He deceives the people. In verse 14 he says, Now about the middle of the feast, Jesus went up into the temple and taught. Remember what he said to his brother, My time has not yet come. His time for teaching has come now. He goes right up into the temple and he taught. Now think in your mind what's going on here. The Jews who sought him to kill him is there, yes? The temple police are there. And at this point in time, Jesus says, I'm going up and I'm going to teach. Notice he didn't go and do more signs. He went to teach. He went to teach. Now his ministry, which is a ministry of grace and truth, he's now coming to the truth. He's going to give them the word, teach them. And the Jews marveled. The Jews, these religious leaders, they marveled. You know what the word marveled mean? They were astonished. They couldn't get this. And this is why. They say, how does this man know letters, having never studied? Now, it doesn't mean that Jesus was dumb. No, he was a carpenter's son. He could speak and he could write. It's not about writing. It's about the sacred scriptures they are talking about here. That, that baffled their mind, because if you think about a Jewish boy... When he comes to the age of 12 years old, he gets his bar mitzvah. You, you heard about that? And at that age of 12 years old, 
the religious leaders, the Jews, comes around, the rabbis, and they take the best, the cream de la cream, of these 12-year-olds, of these young men, and they take them for them as disciples, and they become rabbis. They study further on. At this point in time, for a 12-year-old, they needed to know the Torah, the first five books of the Bible. The ones who's not chosen by the rabbis, from 12 years old, they were seen as adults, and they had to go into their professions, either whether it's a fisherman, whether it's a blacksmith, or whether, in Jesus' case, he's a carpenter. So now they teach them their trade, what they're going to work in. So here comes a carpenter, a carpenter, and he sits amongst these highly educated in the Scriptures, and they marvel. You know, I love this. I absolutely love this, and it should give you confidence. Look, the pulpit is not for the highly educated this morning. It's not for the highly educated. No, no, it is for everyone who opens his heart to the Lord, who are saved by the blood of the Lamb, and the Lord through the Holy Spirit, who is the teacher, opens the Scriptures. Look, I'm not standing here this morning and say I've got a degree in Bible studies. I haven't. I don't need that. And, and look, I'm not having a go at people who's got degrees in that. God bless their hearts. He's given them time and He's given them wisdom to do that, and knowledge. And a lot of these people who's got degrees in biblical studies, some of them, true to the Word, I mean, I listen to them and, and it's fascinating. But here is a man. Here is a man who comes in amongst them and he speaks and they marvel. They absolutely marvel. I love it when God uses vessels that oftentimes are broken. Yes? They marvel and they say, how does this man know letters having never studied Jesus answered them and said, and I love this, He says, My doctrine is not mine, but He's who sent me. If anyone wants to do His will, he shall know concerning the doctrine, whether it's from God or whether I speak in my own authority. He who speaks from himself seeks his own glory, but he who seeks the glory of the one who sent him is true. And no unrighteousness is in him. Think about what Jesus said. It is so true to our day. You see, first of all, I find that Jesus is not pointing, he's pointing to his doctrine and not to his credentials. You see that? Think about this. He didn't stand up there and say, Whoa, wait a minute, I am Jesus, the son of Mary. Let me tell you what the angel told my mom. I'm a very important person, eh? He didn't stand up there and start doing that. You see, he didn't point to himself. He pointed to what? To the Scriptures. Doctrine is a code of belief. A code of belief. He says, my doctrine is not mine. What doctrine is he talking about? He's talking about the Old Testament Scriptures. He says, I want you to listen to what I'm going to say. And what I'm going to say is going to be the doctrine of God, my Father, the Old Testament, the Scriptures. 
And then when I taught you the Scriptures, then you the one. I'm not going to throw my credentials out there. Test me on what I'm teaching. That's what he's saying to them. He says, my doctrine is not mine. I can't claim anything in this Bible as mine. It's His. Which is just flowing through us. Secondly, what I love about this, is He was not self-taught. You see that? He's not self-taught. He, he was taught out of the Scriptures, out of the doctrines of the Old Testament. He, he preached what he read in the Old Testament. And we know, you and I know today, that everything in the Old Testament pointed towards whom? Towards him. He said at one stage, the whole volume is written about me. Everything is about him. But he didn't come out there and say, oh, everything you're going to read in that Old Testament, here I am, I'm the man. He didn't do that. No, no. He says, he points them to the doctrine. They marvel about the letters and the things they studied. And he goes, test me on the doctrine. And that's the same to us. In Acts chapter 17 verse 10, when Paul and Silas, when they were sent to Berea, we read this about them. He says, Then the brethren immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea. And when they arrived, they went into the synagogue of the Jews. These were more fair-minded than those in Thessalonica. In Thessalonica, they wanted to kill them <coughs> for what they preached. In that, they were more fair-minded in that they received the word with all readiness. Now, that is one thing that we need to do. Are you receiving the word this morning with readiness? How do I get ready, pastor? You come to church, prayed in. You pray this morning for this church. You pray this morning for me to preach the word in, in spirit and truth. You come this morning with an attitude and you say, Lord, I want to receive from you. That is readiness. But it doesn't stop there. That's where a lot of Christians stop. And they will come sit in church and some during the sermon will doze off and have a quick nap. You know a power nap? <laughs> you feel so good after a power nap of five or ten minutes. And, and, and wake up then and then go on and say, wow, that was a good sermon. Or maybe you're not dozing off, you're sitting there and you say, wow, that really was good. My prayer is that the Holy Spirit will touch your heart through the Word. That's what I prayed this morning before I started preaching. That's what I continually pray. I say, Lord, change people by your Word. That's my prayer. That's why I preach. But you see, these fair-minded people came to the Word, they received the Word with all readiness, but that's not where it stops. It's so sad that these days there are Christians sitting in churches and they will listen to sermons and never, ever, ever, ever test what is preached. Never. And that is why you've got so much false teaching going on in church. Because pastors and preachers were never held to account to the Word of God. Never. I find, I'm telling you now, I've seen it around the last few years in Australia. People preach and they will just walk out of the church and let it go. I'm not like that. You shouldn't be like that. The Bereans were not like that. 
And Jesus was not like that because He says, My doctrine is not mine. Test me by what I teach. That's what Jesus said. That's what Luke said when he wrote down here in Acts. And that's what I said to say this morning. Never ever go into a sermon and just sit there. Go afterwards. Listen to it. Take your Bible. Test it to the Word. It says there in Acts 17 verse 11, they received the Word with all readiness and searched the Scriptures daily. Why did they search the Scriptures daily? It's right there in front of us to find out whether these things were so. To find out whether these things were so. Jesus says, my doctrine is not mine, but he who sent me. If anyone wants to do his will, he shall know concerning the doctrine. Test the doctrine. Test the doctrine. Test the scriptures. Test the sermons. If somebody preached to you, test what they preach. If it feels off, ask them. If they get angry at you, go away. Is that rush? It's true. If Jesus said it, then I stand on it. There are so many people preaching false. I was, I was writing just, just a few months ago. I was on, on, on the internet and I listened to a lot of sermons. I listened to them, good and bad. It's my work. I listen to sermons. I came across this man here in, in Melbourne. Their, their church, I, I went in there and I saw a sermon and I saw a name coming up, Mandela. And I thought, okay, that's South African. That just triggers me. And then when I clicked on the link, it went into a small synopsis and it talks about Bry and all of those things. And I think, okay, this man has got a lot of South Africans there. because. And then he goes on about it. And then he preaches for 15 minutes on Nelson Mandela's book. 15 minutes. And what he went to is one place where he says that Nelson Mandela had to throw off the chains. And he uses this, that as his preaching cornerstone for the whole message. Now, now look, I've got no issues. You know, you know, Nelson Mandela is dead now. He's in God's hands. And you know, God will judge him. I'm not going to do that. But this is the fact. 15 minutes of having time to preach the Word of God, he preached rubbish. And I wrote him an email. As I am, I wrote them an email. I said, look, you look like a very competent preacher. And I've listened to the whole sermon and things which you said, why would you use this man's stuff? And you know what? I got ridiculed for that. But this is it. I'm not standing on... And then he came back, he says, on whose authority are you standing? Who's your pastor? Who's your eldership? You know who is my eldership? Who's my authority? Jesus Christ Himself. Because He says it, my doctrine is not mine, but He's who sent me. You will know me by the doctrine, what I preach and teach. I'm not a humanist. I'm a Christ follower. So there we go. He's Doctrine was the Old Testament. And he was not speaking of his own glory. You see, he was not self-taught. He says, he who speaks from himself seeks his own glory. How many times have you heard sermons where people for, uh, out of the 40 or 50 minutes, they talk about themselves more than about Jesus? More. More about how good they are. 
No, I just did it. I told you that story about that pastor, isn't it? But that is to, to make a point. But you find these people these days, they love to talk to the, about themselves. It's just love it. It's more about them than Jesus. You, you know when Jesus was on a donkey when he rode into, the, into Jerusalem and the people threw down the branches and everything? You, you know that passage? You know, we are the donkey. Jesus is driving on us. You know, we are just preaching. But you know what I see these days? I see the donkey speaking out. He goes, man, I'm that donkey. Have you seen me? I'm the one who brought him in. It's not about who was on his back. It was about him. The focus needs to be Jesus and him alone. You see, he was, he was not self-taught. He was not seeking his own glory. Now, the question is, how do somebody speak about himself? If, if they, he says, he who speaks from himself seeks his own glory. How? How does somebody speak uh, from himself? I'll give you one giveaway, one big giveaway. It's when they steer away from the Scriptures. If you go in and you listen to a sermon and there's not a lot of Scripture teaching, they are steering away from me, they start preaching about themselves. But I better hurry up. There's more. Let's look at verse 19. He says there, John 7 verse 19, Did not Moses give you the law? Yet none of you keep the law. Now he's going to go back to, this, to this, the reason why they seek him in uh, John chapter 5 verse 16, 17, 18. Remember when he healed this man on the Sabbath, they wanted to kill him for that. And he then made himself equal with the Father. But he's going to address the first part now. He went away from there. He went into Galilee. Now he's back. He's speaking to them. And now he faces them. It's a cold face. He says, did not Moses give you the law? The one thing they were standing on was the law. Yet, none of you keep the law. I don't know about you, but if I'm one of those Jews sitting there, those religious leaders, I'll, I'll, I'll just sit upright. I would have dozed off maybe, but now I'm sitting upright. What? You, you want to say we're not keeping the law? Come on, explain why. And then he goes on, he says, why do you seek to kill me? Referring back to John chapter 5. The people answered. You see, this is not the religious leaders. The people answered and said, you have a demon. What? Who is seeking to kill you? The reason why they say that is because they are the ones coming from outside of Jerusalem. They didn't know what happened in John chapter 5. Now they say he's got a demon. Now they, they, the, the word demon there means you are crazy. You are now actually acting crazily. You're a little bit paranoid now. Nobody's seeking to kill you. This is what the people say. But we know, we know the Jews wanted to kill him because what he did. So the people say you have a demon. Who's seeking to kill you? Jesus answered and said to them, I did one work. It's as if he didn't even listen to the people because he's addressing these Jewish leaders now. He says, you say, I broke the law, but you break the law. And this is how he says it. He says, I did one work, and you all, you all marvel. Moses, therefore, gave you the circumcision, not that it is from Moses, but from the fathers. This is what John adds in there. And you circumcise a man on the Sabbath. If a man receives circumcision on the Sabbath, so that the law of Moses should not be broken, are you angry with me because I made a man completely well on the Sabbath? 
Do not judge according to appearance, but judge with righteous judgment. That is a very good argument, I must say. He says, you are prepared to break the law, to circumcise a man on the Sabbath. I come around and I heal a man on the Sabbath, and now you judge me. All I'm asking for is a righteous judgment. If you're going to judge me, then you judge yourself. Because you are breaking the law. He's making a very fair point there. Back to them. Um, verse 25. Now some of them from Jerusalem. This is the third group of people that comes into the picture now. The first ones were the Jews, the religious leaders. Then he says the people. Those were the people coming from around, from outside of Jerusalem. But these people were living in Jerusalem. They were not religious leaders. They were living there, the inhabitants. This is the third group now. And see how they react. Now some of them from Jerusalem said, Is this not he whom they seek to kill? You see, they knew what was going on. But look, he speaks boldly and they say nothing to him. You see, they make an argument in their minds now. Do the rulers know indeed that this is truly the Christ? They are confused. Jesus stands up in front of them. He talks to them about Moses. Break, they're breaking the law and they say he's breaking it. He speaks boldly to them about his doctrine. Now the people who live in Jerusalem who know what happened in John chapter 5, they look at this now and they ask this question. They look at the, the religious leaders and they do nothing with Jesus saying this and they go, maybe, maybe they think he is the Messiah. Can you see their logic that they're working out now? However, we know where this man is from. Yeah, there he comes. He's history. He comes from Bethlehem. He's a carpenter's son. There you see. It is so amazing, dear friends, that, and I've seen it so over the years, somebody gets so close to be born again, and then a, a question comes in, or a reasoning comes in. Oh, let's reason this thing out now. You see, they were so close to accept him as the Christ. However, however, so close, we know where this man is from. But when the Christ comes, no one will know where he's from. You see, they, they reason themselves so close to Christ, then they reason themselves out of it. That's the natural thinking. I've seen this happen so many times. So close, but it can't be. Because no one knows where he's from. But they will know if they study the scriptures correctly. I want to suggest to you that these people are not like the Bereans that, that I've mentioned. I want to suggest to you that these people ignore their prophets. Because if they've studied those books, they would have seen and know that it was prophesied about him. The things he was doing, no one else did before. They tried to say, show us more, more signs, but he's preaching to them now. Then Jesus cried out as he taught in, in the temple saying, you both know me and you know where I am from and I have not come to of myself but he who sent me is true, whom you do not know. I want you to really think about what he's saying. 
They say, no one knows where he's from. He says, but you know me. But the problem here is you don't know him who sent me. In other words, you don't know your scriptures. You don't know the Father. If you knew him, you'd knew me. He said at latest days, if you see me, you've seen the Father. Friends, let us not sit in church and have this veil over our eyes and fall into the same trap as the people who are sitting around there. Come so close, of whom you do not know, verse 29, but I know him, for I am from him, and ye sent me. How clear could that be? Therefore they sought to take him, but no one laid a hand on him because his hour had not yet come. We'll see in John chapter 12 that he says that his hour has, his hour has come, but not yet. I hurry on. Verse 31. And many of the people believed in him and said, when the Christ comes, he will do more signs than these which this man has done. All of a sudden they remember the scriptures. Isn't it amazing? They were reasoning around this. He tells him, you do not know the Father, that's why you don't know me. Then they say, they started believing him, when the Christ comes, we, will he do more signs than these that this man has done? Because in the scriptures it says that he will do these signs. That's why always they come to him and say, show us a sign, show us a sign. Now they want more, now they believe. The Pharisees heard the crowd murmuring these things concerning him. And the Pharisees and the chief priests sent officers to take him. They couldn't have this. Can't let this thing just go on. Then Jesus said to them, I shall be with you a little while longer and then I go to him who sent me. Obviously, he's now pointing towards his ascents and going up on the, on the clouds. You will seek me and not find me. There's your verse. And where I am, you cannot come. Then Jesus said amongst them, the Jews said amongst themselves, Where does he intend to go that we shall not find him? Does he intend to go to the dispersion amongst the Greeks and teach the Greeks? What is this thing that he said, You will seek me and not find me, and where I am, you cannot come? They are now absolutely confused. They don't know what's going on. They say, what is this thing? You will seek me and not find me. Well, that is a very, very important question. You see, the first thing is they, that point, that could point to seeking him physically to kill him. That he said, you will seek me and not find me. But you and I know that they did seek him and they did find him and they did kill him through the hands of the Romans. So it's not that. That's not that what Jesus was pointing to. He was not pointing to a physical. They were thinking in the physical. They said, will he physically now go to the, to the Greeks and teach the Greeks? We don't get it. What, what is he meaning? What's he talking about? Where I go, you can't find me. But you, you see that spiritual things are spiritually discerned. Secondly, it could mean that seeking him to destroy his church or his following but yet again, that's a physical thing, so it's not that. What is it then that he means? Well, they are wicked at heart and can't see and accept his grace and his truth. They can't accept it. The truth is facing them, and what he's talking about them is spiritual. He says, you will seek me, and you will not find me. There's going to come a day that you will seek me, and you will not be able to find me. And friends, that is... That is a really serious thing to think about. The question is, has God got a deadline 
Has God got a point where there's a line that's drawn in his hand? Now, I want to say to start before I go further, that I believe that the grace of God, I am not God. I'm not talking on behalf of God in this respect, what I'm saying now. Because I believe God can save a man any time in his life. He is a sovereign God. He's a powerful God. He can save you on your deathbed. And, and I've heard so wonderful testimonies about that. But that's a miracle when that happens. I'm serious when I'm saying now that the following scriptures is what these guys in their Bibles couldn't understand. We look at Jeremiah chapter 29 verse 12. Now just to give you a little bit of background, this is when the people were taken in captivity to Babylonia. And Nebuchadnezzar was there and they were going to take these people. And as they went out, the Lord gives Jeremiah a letter which he writes to them. They're sitting in a foreign land. I'm putting this to you in context. I don't want to use scriptures out of context. So this is a letter from Jeremiah to the Jews, to the Jewish people. And you can go and read that whole letter. It's a wonderful letter. He tells them that he says, for 70 years you're going to sit there. Marry, have children, grow strong. That's what he tells them in that letter. It is going to be in captivity. It is, they are going to be slaves. They are, they are not in their own country. He says, take courage in this. And then he tells them, after that 70 years stop, he says in verse 12, to, uh, Jeremiah 21, 29, 12, he says, then you will call upon me after the time and go and pray to me. And I will listen to you. And you will seek me and find me when you search for me with all your heart. And it's amazing, dear friends, when you look at those words there, he says, you will seek me and find me. This was to his Jewish people. Yet now, years later, they are in Jerusalem. They in, well, although they are under Roman law, although they're sitting there, they can rule themselves. They're in their own country. And he says, you will seek me and not find me. I find it fascinating. When they're in captivity, he says, there's going to come a time when you'll seek me and you will find me. And now they're sitting in Jerusalem. You see, sometimes it's when it's going well with us that we don't look for God, is it? When everything is honky-dory, when everything is going well, we put God aside. We don't want to look for Him. But when trouble comes in your life, that's when we start seeking. Now I want you to have a look at the next verse. Isaiah chapter 41 verse 10. Again, this prophet writes to him, he says, Fear not, for I'm with you. Be not dismayed, for I'm your God. I will strengthen you. Yes, I will help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. You see, looking at these verses through the prophets, God is there. And He is there, dear friends. He wants to help. If you seek Him diligently with all of your heart, what's going to happen? You will find Him. But do you think people want to search Him with all of their heart these days? No. I don't see signs of that. And then it comes to the point that He says, You will seek Me and not find Me. Now if those words are true to the Jewish people in the Old Testament, and it's true to you and me today as we read the Scriptures, it's written to us as well, then these words are true to us as well. There will come a time when people will seek Him and not find Him. How does that work? How does it work? Let's go to, to Proverbs chapter 1. 
And we see what Proverbs writes about this, this book of wisdom. He says in Proverbs 1.23, Turn at my rebuke. Turn at my rebuke. What needs to happen? They need to turn. You see, the thing is, people are doing their thing every day. They are walking in a direction. It's sinful. It's wickedness. It is every single thing away from God. And there comes a day and a time that God turns to man and He says, you need to turn. The things you are doing is wicked and you will surely die. That's what He said in the Garden of Eden, didn't He? He said, if you eat of that tree, you will surely die. What happened? They ate of the tree. And from then on, people are walking in wickedness. And there needs to cometh a time of turn for every single person who are born upon the face of the earth. They need to come a time of turn at the rebuke of Him. He says, turn at my rebuke. Surely I will pour out my Spirit on you. Let me ask the question this morning. Is the Spirit of God poured out on this earth? Yes, it is. At the day of Pentecost, it was poured out on the whole face of the earth. There's no excuse. I will make my words known to you. Let me ask the question, is His words made known to us? We've got so many Bibles these days in the world. More than ever. More than ever. You walk into a bookshop, there is books upon books upon books. Good ones and bad ones, I must say. He's made His Word known. His Spirit is poured out. <clears throat> and then he, all He's saying is, turn at my rebuke. Because I called and you refused. The call of God is every day. It's in this place this morning. Because I have called and you refused, I have stretched out my hand and no one regarded because, you see all of these becauses here, verse 25, you disdained all my counsel and would have none of my rebuke. One would think after all of these things, you know, the pouring out of His Spirit and His Word, one would think that mankind will turn to Him. One would think they will make a 180 degree turn and walk towards, one would think all of that, with His goodness upon your life, with every single thing, but then he says, because you do not do these things, because, because, and would not have none of my rebuke, what will happen? In verse 26 he says, I also will laugh at your calamity. Can you imagine that? Can you imagine you sit in your calamity in your darkest time, and you cry out and you say, oh, what? He says, I will laugh at that. Why? Because of these things. Listen, I'm preaching a serious message this morning. I'm telling you the truth. We've got Jesus' ministry, grace and truth. This is the truth. This is it. He says, I laugh at your calamity. I will mock when your terror come. Is this the same God we're talking about? Yes, it is. He said, just God. He's a righteous God. He says, I will mock when your terror comes. When your terror comes like a storm, and your destruction comes like a whirlwind, when the distress and anguish come upon you, then they will call on me, but I will not answer. 
They will seek me diligently, but they will not find me, because they hated knowledge, 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 and did not choose to fear the Lord. You see where we are sitting this morning? He turned to these people and he says, you will seek me and not find me. And one begs the question to ask and say, why, Jesus, why? Well, it's written in Proverbs. It's written right there. They would not turn on the rebuke of him. They would not turn. And they've got all the things for them. They've got the Spirit poured out. They've got the Word. And then he says in the end, because they hated knowledge. The world hates the knowledge of Christ. The world hates Christ. They do not want to turn to him. Then surely, surely there's a deadline. There's the deadline. One more verse, which I'll expound and then we'll pray and go home. Proverbs 29 verse 1. He says, He who is offended, uh, he who is often rebuked and hardens his neck will suddenly be destroyed and that without remedy. Did you know the scripture verses in the Bible? You see people, and this is what I hear these days, you know, people like to, to stand on the promises. Oh, we stand on the promises of God. And they just read the promises and it's all good and it's all rosy. But there's these scripture verses as well. You see, we need to give the whole counsel of God. Oh, preacher, you fire and brimstone. Well, the word is fire and brimstone. These men, that's what I'm dealing with. I'm dealing this morning with seeking in vain. There cometh a time when they're going to seek in vain. Look at this now. He says, Proverbs 29, he says, He who is often rebuked. You see, we have the Holy Spirit who convicts our hearts. That's the work that the Holy Spirit does. If you read in John chapter 16, he says, This is the work of the Holy Spirit. Convict the world of sin, of judgment, and of righteousness. The Holy Spirit is around. You can sit in a car, you can, you can listen to a song, and the Holy Spirit convicts you. The Holy Spirit speaks. Did you know that? Through His Word. He, he's there. He's in us and with us. But do you know, do you think people want the Holy Spirit? No. You're away with the Holy Spirit. We don't know your, your spirit-filled talking. I was working in a company, and one lady said, Oh, I've got it against these people, and say, I'm spirit-filled. Well, there's a problem there. He often rebukes through the Holy Spirit. He comes and he convicts through servants of God. Have you ever had somebody coming to you and talk to you about the sin in your life? Think about that. The Bible says that's what we need to do. If you see a brother or sister sin, what do you need to do? Go to them and correct that. But I'll tell you what happens these days. You see somebody sins, you go up to them as a servant of God or people of God and you try to correct that and what happens? I'm not going to talk to them anymore. Who do, who do they think they are to come and tell me all of these things? Well, maybe, brother and sister, they were sent by God to talk to you because other people who say they love you wouldn't say that. But the one who loves you, you see, Jesus loves it and he did that. Sorrow sometimes is a rebuke. You know, when I lay people to rest at a funeral, you know what I preach? The gospel. The gospel. People don't need to hear about this person who's died. It's gone. It's finished. It's about the ones who's alive. You see, the word is a rebuke. 
The word could be a rebuke for some this morning. It could be for some who hear me over this, this as we put it on the internet. And I hope so. I hope the word is a rebuke for some this morning. Or for people who hear this. He says, he who is often rebuked. Now one would think if you're rebuked, you turn, like Jesus said, if they would only turn. One would think that. And, and a lot of people turn. And praise to God for that. Praise God for that. But what happens in this case, Proverbs says, and harden his neck. They harden their necks. And how do you harden your neck? By procrastination. You know that big word, procrastination? Oh, I'm so guilty of it so many times when I have to do some work around the house. Well, I'll do it tomorrow. <laughs> and tomorrow becomes the day after and the day after. <laughs> I'm saying it in shame. But that's only works around the house. Could you imagine that people would procrastinate when they are rebuked by the Holy Spirit and say, oh, not now. Oh, not now. Maybe next time. Maybe, maybe in five years' time when I'm a little bit older. Young people like to do this, do you know? Young people like to say when I'm older. But these statistics coming out, they, they looked at all the people giving their hearts to the Lord. You know what? The, the biggest group give their hearts to the Lord is between the ages of 18 and 35. 18 and 35. More people give their hearts to the Lord in that bracket. And then when you take the next bracket and the next bracket's on, it becomes less and less and less and less. And look, we are living in an aging population, isn't that right? So we are sitting with an aging group of people where now it's a miracle, only a miracle from God. Why? It's because of the hardening of hearts. He says it there, and hardens his neck. Now what is he saying? There is, the other thing that hardens a person's neck is pride. You can't tell me that. I don't want to hear I'm, a, I'm, I'm lost when I need a savior. And also the places and the possessions of the world. I'm running out of time. There are scripture verses which, can, which, which I can back all of these things up. Pride of life. Pride. Well, I'm not going to get you to tell me. Nah. Oh, it's all about me. Me, myself, and I. And pleasures and possessions. Pleasures and possessions. It's keeping people. And, and you know what it does? It hardens their neck. It, it, it says it right there. And what will happen? And will suddenly be destroyed. Suddenly be destroyed. You see how this destruction happens? It happens in the mind. Listen to me, friends. I'm showing you something here this morning. When it comes to a point, God's always willing to save. He says He's open. And, he, and like I said before, I'm not, I'm not playing God. I'm not saying God has turned His back on people. He's not. While you're alive, you've got time ample to come to the Lord. Whether you're 90 years old or whether you're 18 years old or 12 years old. But listen to this. Listen to this. He says in 2 Thessalonians 2, 11, and for this reason, why? Because they hardened. They always turned away. They wouldn't listen to the rebuke. For this reason, God will send them a strong delusion. A strong delusion. It happens in the mind that they should believe the lie. There's such a big lie in the world today and people believe it. It's amazing. I saw something about Scientology the other day. Honestly, really, you get people who's got sane minds, who's got a high IQ, and they fall for that nonsense. Really, that's a lie. 
And you know what? We sit in front of it and we go, how could they fall for that? Well, these description was God sends them a strong delusion that they should believe the lie. That they all may be condemned who did not believe the truth and had pleasure in unrighteousness. These are the words of God. You say, oh no, you know, I'm going to wait until I'm, I'm, I'm uh, you know, at my deathbed. I will do that on the day. Well, I hope your mind is in such a state that you will do it. You see, there's also a desertion of the Spirit. And then death can come at any moment. If people harden their necks, death can come at any moment, and you've hardened your neck. And then finally, and without any remedy. That is so final and so sad. And, and, and I will finish off by saying this, according to the Word of God, that you can't change after death. Do not believe these people. You know what the Mormons do? They put this ad on TV and they say, your ancestors, have you seen that? They show something happened back in... 1935, and there's this person coming on TV, and he goes, oh, I've got so much to tell you, and a story to tell you, and you're sitting there, and he says, come and search for me, and then you've got to go to this website, and you log in, and you try to find your ancestors, and then you can find out who's your mom's mom, and blah, 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 and you go to your great, 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 great. Have you seen those ads? Ancestry.com. That, that's from, that's from them, the Mormons. They fund that whole thing. You want to know why? Because they want you to find them so that you can pray for them and they be baptized while they're dead. That's what they'll spill for you. And I want to tell you today it's a big lie. Now, well, you know, I know there's people who believe in it because God gave them a strong delusion to believe that lie, but you and I don't have to believe that lie. We've got the Holy Spirit who's, who's spirit and truth. The fact of the matter is, while we are still alive, while we breathe, that's why it says so many passages in the Old Testament. It says, come let us reason together now. Now, though your sins were like scarlet. Reason together. This is a serious message. I've touched on things, you know, friends, that if I think about family members, dear family members of myself, I look at them and I say, Lord, they've got surely hardened necks. You talk to them, they don't want to hear. Don't talk to me about Jesus. Don't talk to me about those things. We need to pray. We need to pray for, we need to pray as a church for each other's families, for your work colleagues. They don't want to talk about Jesus. You talk to them, get away with me with that Jesus nonsense. Don't even tell them about a personal relationship or being born again. Get away with that nonsense. That's rubbish. We don't talk that stuff here at work. You'll, you'll lose your job if you talk more about that. There's a deadline. And these people's necks will be hardened. And my prayer is, Lord, tarry with those people. Don't take their lives. Or don't let them die before they come to you and a miracle happens. Do you know that being born again is an absolute miracle? You want to see somebody, we, we're preaching from a, a, a funeral home. Uh, they bring dead bodies into this place and they bury them. 
if I walk in here one day and we pray as a church and somebody standing out, out of the coffin, everybody will go, woo, woo, woo. You know what? It happens all the time when, when people come and they give their hearts to the Lord. Because he says in Ephesians, you were dead in your trespasses and sin, but now he made you alive. Friends, we are sitting here, and I know I talk to people who are born again. But keep on praying. And keep on searching and studying the scriptures. Have we learned something today? Let's pray.